The following is a teaching from Irving Bible Church. To learn more about who we are, visit irvingbible.org new. Oh, we're going. Okay, great. Um, I have a really important um, question that I need to ask you. Do I need like makeup or hair? What? You didn't do that already? One word, first thing that comes to mind to describe IBC, what would the one word be? Ooh, um, I need to think about this. One word to describe IBC. Quick, quick, first thing. Blue. Blue, okay. <laughs> youth. Youth, youth at IBC. People. Yeah, people. Welcoming? Welcoming, all right, that's good. Okay. I thought you always were coming camera ready. That was the I, agreement. TV. <laughs> I see monkey. Oh, hey. You never know what's going to happen with uh, live live television. You know, I think he's trying to get out of this. I think he's like used his daughter as a distraction to like sneak away from this, but I'm not going to let it fly. Jesus is standing right here, hanging out with us, having a cup of coffee, and you could ask him one question. What question would you want to ask? How do I become more like you? It's a good question. I think I would ask him how he is because he is he's kind of like caring for the whole world, you know? He's, he's omnipresent, om, omniscient. So I'm like, how are you? How you doing? How, how you doing, Jesus? Why mosquitoes? Why mosquitoes? I, I don't know. <laughs> That's, yeah. You could ask him any question you wanted to. What question would you want to ask? Oh my goodness, I don't know. Hey, there's my son. Hey, Dylan, how's it going? Some sort of game. <laughs> you on TV? How did you do it? How'd you do it? I couldn't do it. That took a lot of will. So that's been a common question. That would be good. You want to be on TV, Myla? Come on over. Yeah. Oh wait, Chad has a great. I do have a. I do have a good question for you. School people. Me? Yeah. What? What we're asking <laughs> people. I'm host now. So I'm hosting the TV show, and what we're trying to do is, if you could ask Jesus any question, what would you ask him? It's a hard one. I know it's really hard. That's why I took over the anchor position, so I don't have to answer it. What do you think, Brett? No, that's my trick. You can't do that. Will I ever fly? Will I ever fly? Another good, another good question. Wow, that is a big, deep question. Um, why God sent him to earth, why he didn't just like leave us as sinners. Oh, that's oh, very interesting. Deep, deep theological question. Oh, you're done? Yeah, yeah. it's harder than it looks, isn't it, Brett? It's harder than it looks, isn't it? <laughs> kind of intimidating too. So sometimes asking questions can be really hard, right, Brett? But Jesus asked a lot of really important questions. And so we wanna make sure that we pay attention to those. So that's what we're gonna do this morning. See ya. Well, good morning. Thanks for being here on this holiday weekend. Uh, it's good to have the kids in the room, the youth in the room, um, all ages in the room. And I wanna start with a question for all of you. And my question is, what are you most afraid of? What comes to your mind when I ask the question, what are you most afraid of? Because I feel like we all could think of something pretty quickly, right? Whether you're five or 55 or 95, we all know what it means to be afraid of something. Um, so uh, just to test my theory, I'm gonna count to three, and on the count of three, 
I want you to just get it off your chest. I want you to yell it out loud. Don't leave me hanging here. So loud and proud, just yell what came out to your, on your mind. Are you ready? One, two, three. Okay, we've all got something, right? Whether it's fear of heights or fear of spiders or fear of the dark. I do think it changes over time. I think it changes with age. Uh, I asked a bunch of our first through fifth graders at our school this last week what they were most afraid of, and here's some of the answers that I got. Uh, Goblins, falling in a hole, uh, your toilet overflowing, throwing up, clowns. And those are all reasonable fears. I understand all those, but as an adult, I'm not sure those would make my top 10 list. Uh, Although to be fair, probably throwing up is still in my top 10 because I'm a huge baby when it comes to that. And who am I kidding? Clowns is still on the list as well. Um, But the Huffington Post did an article last year on childhood fears, and they asked adults to talk about what their biggest childhood fears were. And I love some of the answers that they got. One woman said this. She says, as a child, I really thought the Bermuda Triangle was going to pose a lot more problems for me than it actually has. And I get that. As a kid, I was scared to death of the Bermuda Triangle. I had a world globe in my room. And yes, I was a dork with a world globe in my room. But I had pinpointed where the Bermuda Triangle was. And I wanted to make sure that when we went on family vacation, we would not pass over the Bermuda Triangle. So I wanted to go to Disney World, but not if it meant being anywhere near that. Uh, Some other answers were uh, flowing lava, black holes, uh, spontaneous human combustion. One of my favorite ones, though, the most one of the most common too was quicksand. This this woman wrote this in. She said, "I spent a good amount of my youth fixated on quicksand and what to do if I ever got caught up in it." What was that about? Did it just go away? I don't hear about it anymore. I was just explaining this to a kid the other day, and he said he thinks we were all on drugs. (laughs) Were we? Because it really was such a huge deal back then. And she was right, it was. And all those fears were part of my childhood. But then you shift into adulthood, and we still have fears, they just change, right? Most studies today still say the number one fear for adults is public speaking which is not helpful to me in this moment right now. And number two fear is death. So death actually is behind public speaking. Jerry Seinfeld says it this way. If you show up at a funeral, look around at the crowd because given the choice, most of them would rather be in the casket than performing the eulogy. But we all know what fear feels like, right? The physiological response that we have to fear where we just, we can't catch our breath. Our heart starts racing. We're sweating. There's chills. There's trembling. It's a terrible feeling. One of my biggest fears, I think, is just the fear of losing control. And and just a couple weeks ago, uh, I experienced a lot of those physical reactions when my son, who was flying back from San Jose, California, texted me. I was going to be picking him up at the airport here in Dallas, and he texted me 30 minutes into his flight, and he said, hey, Dad, we're going to be a lot later than I thought. We're making an emergency landing in San Francisco because uh, we're having some engine failure." And immediately, all those reactions start coming up in me. I'm going into scramble mode. I'm on my phone looking like uh, on the app, where is the plane? Has it landed safely? 45 minutes later, my app is still saying in flight. And I was thinking, how can this be? These two airports are 30 miles apart. This is a 40, I I could be there in my car by now. Where is the plane? Well, it turns out it was out over the ocean doing 
figure eights trying to get rid of some fuel because they had too much fuel to land the plane. But I have a terrible fear of losing control. Another biggie for me is um, being trapped, feeling like I'm trapped in something. And you couple that with loss of control and it's almost unbearable for me. That's why two weeks ago today when that Titan submersible vessel went missing, uh, I could hardly catch my breath. For those three days as we waited to learn the fate of those five men, what a horrific tragedy. And now the investigation has begun and experts are on the scene and they're trying to get some answers to some questions, aren't they? How did this happen? Could this have been prevented? And we know that there's some answers they're never gonna get because the people who could answer the questions are no longer here. But if you could ask them some questions, um, I think one of my top questions would be, what were you so afraid of in that moment? What were you afraid of? Other questions I might wanna know is, what was it about your personality, your wiring, that would cause you to go on an adventure like that that is just so dangerous? Uh, or what was, if you knew that there was trouble, trouble coming, what was on your mind in that moment? Or who was on your mind in that moment? What role did your faith play uh, in handling that moment? What resources did you rely on? So many questions. But I think what were you most afraid of would be near the top of it. I can tell you what question would not be anywhere on my list. A question that I would never even think to ask those five men, and it's this one. Why were you so afraid? I just, I, I, I think that question doesn't, it doesn't even need to be asked, right? I think we would all understand why you were so afraid. You're under the ocean, there, there's, this is a life and death situation, you're trapped, you have no control. Who wouldn't be afraid in that type of situation? I don't think that question even sounds like it would be helpful in any way. And yet, as we continue in our series, looking at questions that Jesus asked of people, it's exactly the question that Jesus asked of some men who found themselves in a very similar situation. They were out in the, in the sea, they were trapped, they had no control, it was a life and death situation. And we're gonna look at that, that um, story in just a minute, but before we get there, I just wanna talk about, for a second, Jesus' questions, because he asked a lot of questions. We're in a series where we're looking at six questions, I think, that Jesus asked, but if you go through the Gospels, he actually asked over 100 questions. And his questions were always intentional, always with purpose. He was never just spitballing questions to try to make conversation. He was asking questions for a reason. You know, I, I spent five years in graduate school training to be a psychologist. And when I went to uh, that school, when I went into that program, I thought the main thing I was gonna be learning was that they were just gonna be handing me kind of a, a, a manual on how to do life in a healthy way. And I was gonna learn that and then put me in a room with some people and I could teach them that and impart my wisdom. But that really wasn't the focus of the program. For those five years, kind of two main focuses we zeroed in on were first, how to listen well, and secondly, how to ask really good questions. How to listen well, because people who show up in crisis oftentimes just need to be heard. There's so much healing that can happen in feeling like somebody hears what's going on in your life. And then how to ask really good questions, because if you can ask the right questions, you can get people to kind of come to a, a, an understanding of what their next step ought to be on their own. Oftentimes, we find truth on the other side of a really good question, and Jesus was the master of good questions. Jesus was so intentional with his questions. So let's look at the story today and try to see what Jesus was getting at with the question that he asked. Now, 
The challenge to this story we're looking at is the story is Jesus calming the storm out on the Sea of Galilee. And the challenge is many of us are familiar with this story. If you grew up in church, you probably know this story backwards and forwards. In Sunday school, you have memories of it. If you're my age, it has to do with flannel boards and film strip projectors. Um, but I, the visuals I remember of Jesus on the, in this story are him and his friends are in a boat and it's clean and it's dry and there's plenty of room. Jesus has room to take a nap. The storm is off in the distance or it's really high and we lose sight of the actual situation, the risk and the peril that would have, would have been involved in this. It would have been palpable if you were one of these guys on the boat that day. It's why I mentioned the story of the Titan, because I think in many ways, the emotions and the fear and the desperation felt by all of us as we kind of went through that two weeks ago parallels this story that we're looking at today. We're gonna be in Mark chapter four. So if you have your Bible or your device, you can turn there. We're gonna begin in verse 35, but Jesus has just finished what many commentators call the very long day, the very busy day. He's been busy healing and ministering and teaching and he's exhausted. And so he just needs a little rest and relaxation to get it in the boat with his friends and kind of sail away. And it says this, that day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side, meaning the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him and a furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. In other words, the waves were coming in faster than they could bail the water out. Now, Kathy and I had the opportunity to go to the, Med uh, to the Sea of Galilee last October. It was my 60th birthday deal. We went on a Mediterranean cruise and part of that was going to Israel and going out on the Sea of Galilee. And it was probably one of the most moving things I've ever done in my life. To be out on that sea where Jesus called Peter and Andrew to give up their livelihood and become fishers of men, to be out on that sea where Jesus walked on the water. Uh, the, the shoreline of that sea is where he taught the famous sermon, the, the Sermon on the Mount. And to our story today, it's where he calms the storm. And so just being out on it caused me to be pretty emotional. And it wasn't helping that the captain of the ship was playing Carrie Job's, you know, the blessing over the speakers. And so, you know, and your children and their children. And it's just, I was a weepy mess. But one of the most unexpected things for me on that day was we went, we saw an actual fishing boat that had been uncovered. It had been kind of preserved in mud for 2,000 years, I guess. And they, they thought this was the type of boat that would have been out there. And so I brought a picture of it because I just want you to see it's not that big. And there were 13 guys on this ship. And this is evening. And this is a storm. It's dark. And storms are loud. And, and these guys would have had to have been yelling at each other just to hear each other, right? They would have all been soaked. And Mark could have used a number of different words to describe this storm in the Greek language, just like we have different words in the English language to describe storms, so you kind of get an idea of the intensity of the storm. And the word he chooses here is seismos. It's the word we use for earthquakes. This was a crazy, scary storm. This was a life and death type of storm. It reminds me of a book that came out several years back called The Worst Case Scenario Survival Handbook. Have you heard of this book? where each chapter gives you some simple steps to escaping some pretty desperate moments, like um, how to you know, deliver a baby in the back of a taxi if that ever happens to you, or how to survive a shark attack. There's a chapter on how to, to escape from a mountain lion. So I'll just give you the steps there in case that ever happens to you. Step one on how to escape from a mountain lion is do not run. Really? You are face to face with a mountain lion 
and you're not supposed to run. And it seems pretty simple, right? Like I can not run. I, I do that all the time. It's really kind of all I do is not run. So that's, that seems simple, but would it be easy if you were actually in the situation? And step number two is try to make yourself look bigger, which is a little counterintuitive for me because I'm always trying to make myself look smaller, right? With dark shirts and vertical stripes instead of horizontal stripes. But it gives you some suggestions on how to do that, like open up your coat. That will make you look bigger. Take your child and hold them up over you. That will make you look bigger. Now, I'm not sure that's a great idea for the years of therapy you'll be paying for when they get old enough to figure out you use them basically as a human shield against a mountain lion. But here's what you find in this book. There's these desperate situations and then some very easy steps about how to get out of them. You just do this, you do that step, and then voila, your problem is solved. And I think sometimes we take that approach in our faith. I think sometimes we slip into that mentality. And in churches, sometimes you've heard talks that seem like we're just saying, hey, you know, here's the problem, here's one, two, three, some steps, and you will be out of it. But, but life's not that easy, is it? Certainly wasn't that easy for the disciples. There's actually a chapter in the book on how to survive danger on the sea, and none of the suggestions would have been helpful for them. Number one was get in a lifeboat. They don't have a lifeboat. Number two was shoot up a flare gun. This is the first century. They didn't have a flare gun. Number three was use a compass and try to get to shore. They didn't have a compass. And so, so what you see here is that there's all these, you know, all these steps, but none of them really work in the context of a desperate situation. And so it is often with us, I think. We have these desperate moments and we have these ideas that come to us. Maybe we've read a book or we've been to a conference and here's what you do, just one, two, three, and it's solved. And it never works that way. Now, before you're in the desperate situation, it all sounds great, right? Like, like before you're struggling in your marriage, before you have your kids, before it's your health crisis that you're dealing with, before you're the one in a financial mess, the steps all make sense. You take your notes, you listen, and you think, okay, well, good, I can do that. But the storms come, and the winds come, and the waves come, and suddenly it feels like nothing you're doing is working. Nothing you do really seems to be helping. The storm continues to rage, and you're just trying to bail water out to keep your head afloat. And that's where the disciples were. They didn't know what to do. They found themselves in a desperate situation. Like they have seen Jesus ministering with people in desperate situations, but now they're the ones in the desperate situation. And now whatever idea that they had that they could control or they could manipulate or they could fix is totally out the window. This storm is too severe for them to hold on to the notion that they can handle it all by themselves. Matthew tells the same story in his gospel. He adds another little detail that this storm came up suddenly. This wasn't like, oh, here comes a storm on the, on the horizon, right? Let's batten down the hatches. Let's prepare for this storm that's coming. No, this, this seismos came out of nowhere. And apparently that happens a lot on the Sea of Galilee. You've got the mountains that surround the sea. The sea itself sits 700 feet below sea level, which was a shocker to me. I thought all seas were at sea level, hence the name sea level, but... It, they're not. So this, you learn something new, right? So this is 700 feet below. And what happens is it causes a tunnel effect and the winds can come in over the mountains. And in just a moment's notice, a violent storm can just, you know, can, can, can spring up. It happens all the time. 
And so here's these guys, and they're out on the sea, and they, and they know the sea, right? They, 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 are, they are fishermen. They know the Sea of Galilee. They've been through the storms, and they are scared to the point that they're not sure they're gonna survive this. Now, the day that we were out on the sea, it was perfectly calm. It was beautiful. It was just a, a, an awesome day. But there was one day back on our cruise ship on the Mediterranean where a storm swept in and it got pretty rough. I brought a picture of it. I realized I should have brought a video because you can't really tell from that. But it was, it, that ship was rocking and it's a big ship, like 5,000 people on this ship. And so to the point that Kathy was kind of panicking, we were going down the hallway to our stateroom and some housekeeping people came by and she stopped them and she said, do y'all think this ship is gonna tip over and sink? And they just kind of looked at her. And I think I heard her asking another guy, has this ship ever sunk? And they were kind of looking like they didn't understand why, because they do this all the time, right? They know what the seas can be like. And so in my mind, as bad as it may look or feel, if the crew of the ship are just kind of walking down the halls doing their job, we're probably okay. But, but if they start yelling, if they start running up and down the halls, then that's the time to panic. And so here's the disciples. They know storms. They know this sea. They have done this many times before, and they are panicking. There's probably a reason to panic. This is obviously a different kind of storm. This boat is in danger of being engulfed by these waves. And verse 38 tells us what Jesus was doing through all of this. It says, Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion, the disciples woke him up and said, teacher, don't you care if we drowned? So you get this, the picture here, right? They are trying to survive a seismic storm and Jesus is asleep on a cushion in the back of the boat. And I know he had to be exhausted. I know he you know, was tired from this day, but was he really asleep? I'm not sure about that. Part of me wonders if he was just faking if he wasn't asleep, right? Because I mean, it's written that he was asleep, but the guys wrote, who wrote it, thought he was asleep, but was he? Could he have been faking it? I mean, I've faked sometimes that I'm asleep, right? As a husband, that happens sometimes. Uh, my wife, we, she wakes up really early in the morning to go do her quiet time, and she'll sleep, you know, slip out of the bedroom, and she'll go do it, but then she'll come back still really early in the morning, open up the door, and say, are you awake? And sometimes I am awake, but I just pretend like I'm asleep because she's gonna want us to go walking, right? And I don't want to go walking. So I just pretend. So I get that. So was Jesus really asleep? Or part of me wonders if he was pretending so that he could overhear their conversation. He's listening to the disciples freak out and wondering how long is it going to take till these guys realize that the guy who spoke the wind and the waves into existence is on the boat with them. How long till that registers with them? Because for now, the disciples seem to forget that Jesus is right there. And by the time they remember that they go and ask him for help, their cry for help sounds a little bit more like an accusation. Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Meaning, don't you, you don't care, right? Why are we in this situation in the first place? If you cared, we wouldn't be here, right? You're God. Don't you have some kind of advanced radar system? Didn't you know this storm was coming? And yet, it was you, Jesus, who said, hey, guys, let's go out on the water. Let's get in the boat. Jesus is the one who leads them into the storm. Does that sound familiar? Have you ever felt that way? And then we want to ask, why me, Jesus? I'm one of your followers, 
right? I, I thought I would avoid the storms. You know when they're coming. You know when we should stay on the shore. What's going on? And so when trouble comes, it's easy to get a little bit disillusioned, partly because I think some of us grew up being taught that if you just follow Jesus, the rest of your life is gonna be smooth sailing. And then the storms come, and we, we're not sure what to make of it. It begins to shake our faith a little bit. The only problem is, that's not in the Bible that you're not gonna have storms. Jesus is the one who said over and over, you will have trials, you will have troubles, you will have tribulations, the storms will come. And so the disciples and all the rest of us who find ourselves in times of life where we are battling storms tend to reach one of two conclusions. This is the tension, I think, that we find ourselves in when we're in a storm. Either God can help and he doesn't care, which is what's implied here. Jesus, don't you care if we drown? And surely you would do something if you could, but, but don't you care? And the other side of it is God does care, but he can't do anything. And why would he, even, would he even go wake him up if he can't do anything? What's the use? He can't help us. And so we live within that tension. And yet here's what we find in this story is that neither of those things are true. He does care and he can do something about it. He can help. But maybe, what if the storm is part of his plan? What if the storm is his help? Think about it. He leads them into the storm he allows the storm, however you want to word that. Why? Because sometimes there is a bigger purpose within the storm. Philip Yancey says, too often we want to get in a storm and ask the question, why me? He says, that's the wrong question. You ought to be asking to what end? God, what are you trying to teach me in the midst of this storm? Because here's what happens in this storm. The disciples see Jesus in a way that they have never seen him before. They experience his presence and they get a front row seat to his power and it changes who they are from that point forward. It changes the faith they have. They start off by saying, teacher, can't you save us? But not moving forward. They won't call him teacher anymore. They now call him Lord. Because in the, the storm, they receive some gifts. They receive some insights that they could not have gotten if they'd have stayed on the shore. Verse 39 says this, he got up, meaning Jesus got up. And he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. And then the wind died down and it was completely calm. And he said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Why are you so afraid? And there's the question for this morning. Why are you so afraid? Jesus, isn't it obvious why we're afraid? Look around, look at our situation. We're drowning here, Jesus and then to add insult to injury, he asked another question. Do you still have no faith? In other words, where is your faith in this? And so they get to see who Jesus is. They experience his great power. And then it causes them to ask a question of each other. It says they were terrified. And they ask each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Who is this man? This is where Jesus' question has led them to a truth that they needed to grab hold of. This is why it was such a great question, because it caused them to ask the question that Jesus wanted them to ask. And I think it's the same question he often wants us to ask when we find ourselves in the midst of a storm, that we would be growing in an awareness of who he is and the power that he holds. See, he is way more powerful than any storm. When Jesus asked that question, why are you afraid? The word for fear there that's used is the Greek word timeo. It means timid. It's like him asking, why are you so timid? 
But then after they see Jesus's power on display, calming the storm, it says they were very afraid or terrified, as this version says. And a different word is used there. The word used there is phobos. It's where we get our word phobia from. It's this all-consuming fear, this awe. Because what they were coming to realize is that Jesus is way more powerful, more fearsome, more awe-provoking than any storm. See, storms have a tendency to kind of Uh, consume us, don't they? They overwhelm our thoughts and our emotions. But here, Jesus is teaching them that there is something more consuming, more overwhelming than life storms. And it's the giver and sustainer of life himself. And that was a lesson that he needed them to learn because he knew what was gonna lay ahead for them. Jesus had a mission. He had a purpose for these 12 men. He would later tell them he was sending them out as sheep among wolves. They they were to go share the gospel. They were to bring the kingdom of God to a lost world. And this job was not gonna be easy. And they could expect more storms along the way. So he needed them to have the courage to do it. He needed them to be all in on this mission, to understand the importance of the mission, to be consumed with this mission so that they would have the courage to keep going when fear and opposition and discouragement would try to tell them to give up. I said earlier, one of the questions that I would have loved to have asked those five guys on the Titan is what gave them the courage to crawl into that tiny tube and you know, no bigger than the inside of a minivan, knowing the risk and the dangers that were involved. And obviously we'll never hear their response to that, but just from reading articles, seeing news clips from people who were friends and family, I think I might've, might guess what they might've said. I think they might have said, you know what? It was so worth it because these guys loved all things Titanic, right? They were passionate about the mission. They were known as Titaniacs. And when you're consumed by and you are captivated with a mission, you will find the strength to overcome obstacles of fear and doubt in order to fulfill that mission. These guys ended up dying doing the thing that they loved. And Jesus knew that 11 of his 12 disciples with him on the boat that day would follow him to the very end. And 10 of those 11 were gonna end up dying doing what they loved. And they would need supernatural strength and courage to make it all the way to the end. So they experience his power. They experience his presence. And suddenly the storm is no longer what is center stage for these guys. Jesus becomes center stage and it changes their faith. It changes who they are. It forever marks them for their mission. So yes, it can be difficult for us to trust God when it feels like he's sleeping through our storms. And yet could we consider the possibility that maybe it is a grace disguised? Maybe the storm is part of his plan. Maybe this is his help because there's something more important than God keeping you from all storms. And that is God teaching you his faithfulness in the midst of the storm. See, they begin to understand that his presence is more powerful than their problems. And from this point forward, they become solely focused on all things Jesus. They become Jesus maniacs so that they can endure future storms and not give up. They will stay on mission. They will finish their race. See, God may send you into storms because storms are his laboratory in which he can teach you about himself. Think about it. Everybody wants to see a miracle in their life, right? But nobody wants to be in a position that they need a miracle. But until God puts you in a place where you need the miracle, where you need his sustaining power, you're never gonna get to experience it. 
So as we close this morning, I think one of the problems with this story is the way it's usually taught, preached, the way I've heard it, the way I've just taught it, is it's uh, taught like a metaphor, right? Here's a storm. We all have storms. Jesus was asleep in the storm. Sometimes it feels like Jesus is asleep in your storm, and it, it just turns into a giant metaphor, which is okay. Jesus used metaphors. He used stories to convey things, even the metaphor of a storm with the wise and foolish builder. But here's the concern, is that I wonder if it doesn't lead us to thinking that Jesus has power to heal metaphorical storms, but maybe not actual storms. So just to be clear, this is not a metaphorical storm that we're reading about. This is not a parable. This really happened. This was an actual storm. And the point being, Jesus has authority over the real deal. He has authority over the winds and the waves. And, and then that points to this truth, that one day, this same Jesus, he will calm the metaphorical storms and he will calm the actual storms. They will all come to an end. See, miracles teach us about the divinity of Christ and they help us with our faith. But even more significantly, the point of the miracles of Jesus is to give us a sneak preview of what's to come. That the day is coming when Jesus will calm all of the storms. And it gives us, this gives us a glimpse of that. Philip Yancey talks about this concept. And I like the way he puts it. He says, to put it mildly, God's no more satisfied with this earth than we are. In other words, you don't like the storms of this life. He doesn't like them either. He's not satisfied. This is not what he wants. This was not his plan for us. This is what sin did. But the day is coming when God intends to do something about it. Philip Yancey says, Jesus' miracle offers a hint of what God intends to do about it. And so here we have Jesus give us this glimpse of what he's gonna do about it, that he will ultimately calm every storm. He is going to set all things right. Revelation 21 says he will wipe away our tears. There will be no more sadness, no more crying, no more, no more death, no more pain, because the old ways will be gone. And so... I don't know what you've walked in here with this morning, what storm you may find yourself in the middle of, but Jesus asked the question, why are you so afraid? And it's not meant as an accusation. It's not meant as condemnation. It's a reminder, a reminder of his love and his faithfulness and his power, that he's Lord and that he still sits on the throne and that he is the Lord over this world and he is the Lord over your life and he is the Lord over every storm. And sometimes he will look at the storm and he will say, peace, be still. And the storm calms. And if you're in the midst of a storm right now, I pray that that's what happens for you. But there are times where he will continue to allow the storm, but he will look at you and he will say, peace, be still. And know that one day this is all coming to an end. This will not last forever. So hold on. Hold on until that day gets here. He promises to be with you in the midst of the storm. You're not alone. He's near to the brokenhearted. He is close to the crushed in spirit. Scripture says you've not been abandoned. He will never leave you or forsake you. And so he invites you this morning to come to him, to trust him, to find real peace and rest in him. As Peter writes, he asks that you cast all of your fears, all of your anxieties on him and know that he cares for you. Thank you for listening to this teaching from Irving Bible Church. To learn more about who we are, visit irvingbible.org new.